the outbreak struck Mayabutu. And they told me in French as we sat around the campfire, there were 13 dead gorillas. Uh, my French was just good enough to catch the phrase when there were 13 dead gorillas in the forest at the time that people in Mayabutu were, were dying of Ebola. 13 dead gorillas. Those are the haunting words of my next guest, award-winning science writer David Quammen. The ever-increasing threat from disease is one of the most dangerous perils apes like us face. While more visually dramatic threats like deforestation and bushmeat draw media attention, in their shadows lurks disease, a nearly invisible constant threat, one that may tip the balance for survival of great apes and us. David Quammen has written extensively over the past two decades about disease ecology and the danger posed by diseases emerging from environments we have disrupted. His numerous writings have appeared in National Geographic, Outside Magazine, Rolling Stone, The New York Times, just to highlight a few. And he's authored over 15 books. In 2002, David walked for eight weeks with ecologist Michael Fay across portions of Africa's Congo Basin. What emerged was the haunting story of those 13 dead gorillas, which inspired David's personal disease journey of discovery, one which he shared in his 2012 book, Spillover. That book and what it began to tell us about the pandemic we now have been living through is where we begin this time on Talking Apes. Hi, I'm your host, Jerry Ellis. Welcome and thanks for joining me on Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Talking Apes is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and through our Patreon members program. If you would like to support Talking Apes, you can do so by logging on to our website at talkingapes.org and check all the options for how you can help ensure a future for the kind of conversations you hear here on Talking Apes. And now, part one of my conversation with writer David Quammen. I want to welcome to Talking Apes, my favorite author on the planet, David Quammen. Welcome to Talking Apes. Thank you very much, Jerry. It's good to talk with you. I am so excited about this because uh, like you, I share this passion for disease ecology. The, it's been this connective fiber to so much of what I have filmed over the last 30 years. Or, and so I've been following your work o- over that time. And and so a chance to share that with people is just, it's super exciting. And I think it's it's become more important, it seems like today than it ever has been um, to understand disease. And I can't think of anyone better in the world to talk about it from the standpoint of a, sort of an umbrella approach to it. Yeah. Infection um, is one of the basic ecological processes that run life on this planet. Uh, There's predation and competition and decomposition and photosynthesis, maybe one or two others I'm not thinking of, and infection, parasitism. It is one of the very basic ecological processes through which we can understand uh, the mechanics of life on earth. Well, I think that's what's so fascinating about it. And, but to get us started, perhaps you could, you know, get us all from the same starting point. Um, You did uh, a TED talk that I saw where you, you talked about three things, zoonosis, um, reservoir hosts and spillover. So maybe you could just talk about those for a minute so that we're all on the same page. Sure. Sure. Um, Well, there's this fancy word, zoonosis or zoonotic disease. Uh, A zoonotic disease is an animal infection that's transmissible to humans. It can be caused by a virus or a bacterium or a fungus or whatever, any sort of infectious agent. If it passes from non-human animals into humans and catches hold and, and causes an infection, then that state of infection is what we call a zoonotic disease, a zoonosis. This is not a fringe subject out at the edge of medicine. This is, uh, this is central to understanding humans and understanding 
our connectedness with the natural world because most of our infectious diseases fall into this category, either in the short term, um, new viruses that have spilled over recently into humans and caused pandemics such as this one or, or, or outbreaks such as Ebola does, these occasional horrific outbreaks, or in the longer term. Uh, we're a relatively young species, 200,000 years old or so, and uh, everything comes from somewhere. And so most of our diseases have come from animals that have a, a longer history. Uh, and maybe they get into us repeatedly and maybe they just get into us once and become human diseases. For instance, measles, which we seem to have gotten from from bovid mammals thousands of years ago and that it has evolved enough so that now it's it's a virus that's essentially unique to us so that's zoonosis um, spillover is the moment that that agent that virus or whatever passes from its non-human host into a human into a, its first human that's the moment of spillover and that that uh when i read about that term it was so vivid and concretizing that it became the title of my book, that my 2012 book, Spillover. And then reservoir host is the term for the kind of animal in which a virus or another agent that spills over um, lives quietly, inconspicuously over the long term, generally without causing symptoms in that particular animal when it's not infecting humans. So bats are the reservoir hosts for a number of these viruses for reasons that we can go into if you want. Nipah virus in Malaysia and Bangladesh and eastern India is carried by bats. Bats, giant fruit bats, serve as the reservoir hosts. Um, uh, we don't know what the reservoir, we still don't know what the reservoir host of Ebola is, but we know that its close cousin in the uh, filovirus family, Marburg virus, has its reservoir host in, um, in a form of fruit bat. Um, and so there's this ecological relationship uh, between us and the viruses carried by certain animals and the reservoir hosts that carry those viruses. Um, and it happens over and over again that viruses spill from reservoir host and become zoonotic agents, cause zoonotic disease because we're constantly interfering with the natural world and exposing ourselves to their viruses. Well, that term spillover, well, first of all, for for everyone listening, we're going to be referring to that quite a bit and partly because as you said, your 2012 book, Spillover, um, is, is the core of part of our conversation today and an excerpt from that that you rewrote and added new material to Chimp in the River. And we'll have a link to that on the blog that accompanies this and a link to your site as well um, for, for folks who want to get that book, which I highly encourage you to do, especially in the times we currently live in with uh, pandemics and, and so forth. It's like... Uh, you were you were like Nostradamus in that book in some ways. Well, I was I was the um, I was hanging out with a number of Nost Nostradamuses, and they were doing the predicting. Uh, I was talking to the right scientists, and they were calling this. You were definitely the messenger then in in spillover because of that. Now that we have that sort of understanding of thinking about zoonosis, reservoir hosts, and spillover. Can you take us back to an event that actually happened in the early 2000s? It seems to have triggered you writing Spillover and going on this, this journey for the last couple of decades. Can, can you take us there and start? Mm. Yes. Yes. In the, in the winter of 1990, early winter of 1999, uh, I was asked by National Geographic, to do a series of stories about uh, a crazy, adventurous, but um, important expedition that an American ecologist, conservationist, explorer named Mike Fay was going to take. He was going to walk across the last remaining great intact forests of Central Amazon, or excuse me, of Central Africa. 
of Central Africa from the northeastern corner of the Republic of the Congo to the Atlantic Ocean, about 2,000 miles. He was calling this trek the mega transect, the, the giant of all transects, walking surveys. Um, and maybe it could could you just explain what a transect is? Yes, yeah, a transect in in ecological lingo is a uh, is essentially a survey walk that a scientist makes in order to see what is happening along a representative stretch of forest. So, a person who is studying chimpanzees at a particular site in the middle of the Congo might have um, a study area that consists of um, a, a, a series of trails, a network of trails, maybe a, a, a square of trails, one kilometer on a side. And so he or she might go out and walk that transect through the forest, maybe a one mile line, one kilometer line every day and see what's happening see what the chimps are doing, see what the vegetation is doing, see how the chimps are interacting with the vegetation, see if you know leopards are predating any chimps, and, and record all that information, walking that transect over and over and over again. It's a repeated survey along a line. Mike Fay decided that he was going to do the mega transect uh, and walk a 2,000-kilometer zigzag line through these forests. At first, he thought it would be maybe 2,000 kilometers, but it ended up being longer, more like 2,000 miles. And um, uh, and walk it only once. Of course, it would be pretty difficult to walk it repeatedly. It took him 456 days to walk it once. So he did that, 456 continuous days on the trail, walking in a pair of river sandals and shorts, uh, with a day pack, with a team of African men who were carrying gear for him and helping him cut a hole through the through the jungle, through the forest, following a compass line that he had charted in advance, um, looking for those areas of greatest conservation value that had not yet been identified. So he was surveying, you know. How, how many signs of chimpanzees? How many signs of gorillas? How many forest elephants? How many dikers? Uh, how many signs of leopards? How many great trees of this species or that species? Where is, how many gorillas? Where, where are the hotspots of biological diversity that should be prioritized and must be conserved? And where are the other places that, as people continue to insist on, using forest um, are more expendable in terms of their uh, the biological diversity they support. So that was the purpose and the, and the method of, of this trek. Um, this editor, wonderful editor at, at National Geographic, Oliver Payne, an Englishman, called me up one day and said, he described this and said, we want you to write a series of stories about this guy and his journey and the photographer on the project will be your pal, the great Nick Nichols, Michael Nick Nichols, uh, who was a friend of mine, but I'd never worked with him yet. But he was one of their staff photographers. And so he they wanted me to team with him and do what ended up being three stories about this this walk. And I ended up making four stretches of it. I didn't walk the 456 days with him. Nobody did with Mike Fay. But I walked about 53 days in total, divided into four segments. I would walk with them for a week or 10 days or maybe two weeks. And then we would come to a river crossing and his supply operations man would come up the river by dugout canoe and bring more supplies and bring a little bit of news and bring more AA batteries and, and rice and then I would go out on the boat with him and go back, come back here to Bozeman, Montana and write an installment of this series of stories. And Faye would continue walking. Nick Nichols would continue photographing in the forest somewhere, not necessarily always with Mike. 
And uh, I would write the story and then I would go back three or four months later and rejoin the march. And one of those, this is what we're getting to. This is what you asked me about. One of those segments was about 10 days of walking through a forest block in northeastern Gabon, stretching westward from the upper Ivindo River, known as the Minkebi block. And the Minkebi block was very rich and untouched by humans, but there were some villages along the river, along the west, excuse me, the east, the east edge of it. And one of those villages was a village called Mayabut Du, Mayabut number two, uh, that was famous in the medical literature for an Ebola outbreak that had occurred there just three years earlier. And I knew about this. I knew that Ebola had struck that village, Mayabut Du, and I had read the scientific papers, the medical papers about it. And it had been a horrible event for this little village. It had infected 31 people and killed 21 of them. That's about 68% case fatality rate, which is the sort of thing that Ebola can do, especially in a remote village. And, uh, and the scientists who showed up in response to that outbreak, scientists and medical people, some from the CDC, they took case histories. They did a lot of epidemiological interviewing, and they learned that this outbreak had apparently begun when some boys from the village went out hunting with their dogs for meat. Of course, the village lived on wildlife. Uh, and they brought back a chimpanzee dead. And the whole village shared this chimpanzee. Uh, and then people started to get very, very sick. Um, not everyone in the village shared it, but those who did share it, those who touched it, ate it when it was insufficiently cooked, um, were the people who got sick with Ebola. And retrospectively, the investigators learned, and the, and the boys all died. Uh, the dogs did not die. But the boys had talked enough by the time that they died that someone in the village knew the boys had not killed this chimpanzee. They had found it dead in the forest. They had scavenged it. It reflects how desperate people are for protein in a little village in, in the Congo forest. So uh, that caught my attention. I knew enough about Ebola to know that it has a reservoir host. We've talked about reservoir hosts. It has a reservoir host somewhere in the African forest. But it's not killing the reservoir host. That's the nature of the relationship between a pathogen and its reservoir host, that the reservoir host has a long-term, stable, um, mutually accommodated relationship with, its, with the virus with its reservoir host. So the fact that Ebola was known to kill chimps and known to kill gorillas, which it was, there was a lot of information on that, indicated that neither chimps nor gorillas could be the reservoir host. They were victims of this virus, just the way humans are victims of it. So the virus had spilled over from its reservoir host somewhere into at least this one chimpanzee. A chimpanzee had died, and the chimpanzee was the intermediate um, between the reservoir host and these humans who got sick. So all of that, I read all about that. I was fascinated by that. I realized that this is an ecological situation. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I was getting off a helicopter in Menkebi Block, rendezvousing with Mike Fay at his little campsite there. Um, supplies were being loaded off the helicopter for 10 days of walking. And we were going to walk through the Menkebi Block just to the west of where this outbreak had occurred in Mayabutu. So we knew Ebola was somewhere in that forest, in its reservoir host. Maybe a bat. Maybe a rodent, maybe a monkey. We didn't know. Um, so we walked for 10 days and we saw lots of signs of dikers and lots of signs of forest elephant and zero signs of gorillas. And this was great gorilla habitat. But we saw no gorilla dung, no gorilla nests, no gorilla prints, no stems of vegetation that had been chewed on by gorillas. And Mike Fay was an expert at 
reading all of these signs, spotting these signs. And so there was this conspicuous absence after 10 days of gorilla population in this great gorilla habitat. Our inference was that those gorillas had been killed off by Ebola. Hard to prove, but a strong inference. And I came out of there and and uh, then rendezvoused again with the supply people and, and flew out of there on a little Cessna from a grass airstrip. And Mike Fay went on walking and I went back to America to write about this. But in the course of that, um, on the first or second day of this walk, I had sat at a campfire with Mike and his African crew. And two of those fellows in his African crew had family that lived in Mayabut Du. So they had been present when the outbreak struck Mayabut Du, this little village. And they told me in French as we sat around the campfire about this. And um, my French was just good enough to catch the phrase when the fellow said there were 13 dead gorillas that he and his friend Sofiano had seen in the forest at the time that people in Mayabutu were were dying of Ebola. 13 dead gorillas. And that phrase went into my notebook, and I still have that notebook somewhere here in this office. Um, and it just... Um, it just transfixed me, this, this event, this sighting of 13 dead gorillas in the forest near the village where people were dying of Ebola. And it represented to me the fact that um, the fact of connectivity, the fact that we are apes, gorillas are apes, chimpanzees are apes, their diseases can become our diseases. What kills them is likely to kill us. Uh, and in this case, that was Ebola virus. And I thought, uh, and I wrote about that in one of the segments of this. And I think it, uh, I think it might have been run in the magazine under the title 13 Dead Gorillas. I'm not sure about that. Um, but it, in, my, in my brain, it, was always, it always carried the, the title 13 Dead Gorillas. And so when I came to write a book about zoonotic diseases, one of my chapters, one of my long um, sections of the book is titled 13 Dead Gorillas. We're going to venture back into the Congo with David in just a few minutes. But first, I wanted to catch up with assistant producer Demelza Bond. Hi, Demelza. I know you and our researcher Megan have been waiting a long time for this podcast with David Quammen can't even tell you how thrilled we are to have David on the podcast. We are both massive fans of his work. And like David said in his TED Talk, zoonotic disease isn't some small, weird thing on the fringe of medicine, you know. 60% of all known infectious diseases among we human apes have come from other animals. So it's really central to our discussions about health. I'm going to post a link to that TED Talk on our website, along with some more information and links to David's books. So please do head over to see those. Our listeners were excited about David coming on the show too. Mel said she was really looking forward to this episode. Raya said, I've just finished Spillover. Fantastic read. About to start Breathless. And Bruce said, thanks to us, he went out and bought David's books. And on that note... A huge, huge heartfelt thanks to Bruce and Diane McCammon, who are our newest Patreon subscribers. It honestly means the world to us. Talking Apes is a program of our parent nonprofit Globio, and we simply couldn't carry out the work that we do without your support. So thank you, Bruce, Diane, and all of our other supporters for your generosity. Yes, thank you, Bruce and Diane, and all the others who are jumping in to support us. Your support is both inspiring and it helps ensure that all the work behind the scenes gets accomplished. And Demelza, for anyone else who wants to help? To everyone else listening, if you do enjoy this podcast, if you get something out of it, if you feel like we're bringing something valuable to the table, then please consider supporting us too. You'll get some goodies in return, such as a membership certificate and access to bonus materials that we're currently working on. It's just a really fun way to support us and be part of our community. Head over to talkingapes.org and click become a patron to learn more. You can also find links to our socials there, so please follow us, come and chat with me 
me and leave some comments. And if you're enjoying this episode, then get excited and join in next week when we'll be back with David Quarman part two. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Demelza. And now back to the Congo and the search for living gorillas and the hiding place of Ebola with David Quammen. In about 2006, National Geographic, God bless them, said, hey, and by this time, I think I was a contributing writer and I owed them three stories a year. And they would often suggest things to me. And and at one point they said, uh, look, David, would you have any interest in doing an article on this thing that we're hearing about zoonotic diseases? These these wildlife diseases that get into humans. And I said, oh, as a matter of fact, I would be interested in that. And they put a different photographer on it, a, a wonderful woman named Lynn Johnson, uh, who specializes in photographing stress in the human face, photographing humans in stressful situations of all sorts. Um, and she and I worked together on this, and, and I loved working with her as I had loved working with Nick Nichols. And we went to to do this, just a magazine story. Um, we went to Australia and spent time with researchers working on Hendra virus, which is carried by fruit bats and then has the intermediate amplifier host of horses. It falls out of fruit bats and gets into horses and and goes crazy and kills horses. And then from horses, it gets into the people who try and save the horses from this disease, veterinarians and horse trainers. Let's see. I went to Cambodia with Billy Karish and watched him vaccinate chickens on the Vietnamese border against Newcastle disease and avian influenza. And then I went out again with Billy because he was going back to the Congo, to the upper Mambili River in Republic of Congo, um, to take blood samples from gorillas in an area, another area where the gorilla population had suddenly crashed um, because of, presumably because of Ebola. Gorillas started showing up dead. Some of them, I believe, tested positive for Ebola. The rest of the gorilla population that was under study disappeared. So the study ended and Billy wanted to go in there and find some gorillas and take tranquilize them and take blood samples and look for Ebola antibodies to confirm the inference that the gorillas had, in fact, suffered a, an outbreak, uh, an epidemic in this population of Ebola. Yeah. Can I, can I interrupt? Can you explain the value of an antibody? He was hoping to find it in living gorillas. How does finding an antibody tell us or infer that that animal it's coming contact, I guess, would be the right way to, to say well, it? Antibodies are relatively specific uh, proteins that fight against alien proteins in a particular body that has an immune system and they linger, they last. So if, for instance, you had covid in September of last year, and for 19 days, you tested positive, um, you know, sticking the swabs up your nose um, for for COVID. We might be testing for fragments of the, the COVID virus molecule. And then when you recovered, your body would clear the virus and the COVID virus molecules would no longer be present. So you would test negative. But if you took an antibody test, it could be determined that you had have had had a COVID infection because antibodies linger after the virus is gone. So uh, antibody testing is useful simply because it tells you what might have happened to a particular animal a year ago, six months ago or a year ago. Um, you could test a gorilla for by PCR that would look for fragments of the virus and, and the virus, then the gorilla would test negative. But if you looked for antibodies, the gorilla might show through its immune system, having created these long lasting antibodies, show a history of having been infected with Ebola. When you say long lasting, do we, do we know exactly how long, like for example, a gorilla, if it had uh, come in contact with Ebola or, or even a human or, if we develop the antibody, how long is, is that a lifetime? Is that a year? I think it differs with different uh, diseases and different individuals. 
And I should be careful not to pretend to be an immunologist because, um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't even pretend to be a disease ecologist. I'm just a, a writer who follows these things. The mammal immune system is one of the most complicated systems, I think it's been said, in the universe, in the known universe anyway. Immunology is really, really complicated. Uh, so I'm going to answer your question by saying, I don't know, and I'm, sure, I'm not sure anybody knows the exact answer to your question. How long um, do these antibodies last? Your, your body acquires a capacity uh, to, to create these new antibodies. If I recall correctly, it's, it's the B cells of your immune system that create antibodies and the T cells of your immune system that create um, killer cells that attack viruses, um, swallow them, and and clear them. So if you've got B, B cells that have acquired the ability to create antibodies against Ebola or against the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19, then um, those B cells can continue creating new antibodies to keep your body prepared, defended against that virus. How long? I don't know exactly how long. Mm. I guess the reason I was asking is because I, I remember when I was talking to Billy, what I didn't ask him was the urgency with which he went back in. Like if, if there's a sense that if you know there's an outbreak in an area that you, you want to get back in there within the first year or you want to get back, you know, where you have a little more time. I think that's true that there is urgency. You want to get back there as soon as possible, but I can't tell you uh, exactly when is too late. I think that in some cases, um, you know, if, if your body were tested for antibodies against the measles virus, a virus that um, people can only be infected with once, uh, I suspect that, but I'm just guessing, that um, a test could detect measles antibodies, anti-measles antibodies in your body. Otherwise, how could you stay protected against measles for life? Although maybe it might be that you're protected by your cellular immunity, your T cells. As I said, gets uh, gets way, way above my pay grade pretty quickly. <laughs> so, so back to, to your journey there with, with Billy. Oh, so Billy and I went in there and, uh, and Lynn Johnson and several of Billy's colleagues, uh, including a Congolese veterinarian. Oh, I can't remember his name. He was such a sweet and charming fellow. And I asked him, um, why he did this dangerous work. And he, he said, just because it's interesting and it's important. His, his statement is in my book, Spillover, somewhere. Uh, I wish I could uh, bring that quickly back to mind. But we went in there. We spent about eight days camping in the forest, going out each day <clears throat> to this area, this clearing area called a Bai, B-A-I, where, um, where the gorillas had been um, feeding uh, in great abundance at an earlier time when the, when the gorilla study was going on. Uh, so that was the area that you would see them if there were any still there. And uh, eight days of, on a, essentially we were on a stakeout, uh, standing in the rain while Billy stood under, I think maybe he had a tarp over him because he had a tranquilizer dart gun ready. Um, and we stood there for eight days being rained on, waiting for Billy to get a shot at a gorilla with a tranquilizer dart gun. There were no gorillas. Finally, there was one young gorilla that he spotted and he tracked through the forest, chased through the forest. He was gone for a couple of hours and he came back and um, had nothing to show for it. He told me I couldn't sample him, but I could have killed him. I could have pithed him because all I had was a shot at his head. So I didn't take a shot. And uh, and so we left. And that's the way science works, as you well know, sometimes uh, eight days of standing in the rain in the Congo and you pack up and you leave and you have no samples. I think what's so fascinating about that story to me, and I remember talking to Billy about it, was the fact that this area was just, it was one of the densest areas for seeing gorillas. Yes. Prior yeah. to this. I mean, yeah. it, it, it was unheard of to go into it because I, I had actually done a lot of research about it because I wanted to go in there to photograph Western lowland gorillas and which are the type that are there. And, and this was like the hotspot 
This was mm. a place you went to these buys. MOBA buy, I think, is is the one that you were in. Right. Yes. I, I remember one account I read where it was it was must have been 60, 70, 80 gorillas were seen in, in the course of a day. Just families and groups coming and going in and out of the buy. And then and then you guys don't see a thing. What's going through your head at this point about this disease? I mean, you're standing in the middle of it. Essentially, this is this part of the world and and the accompanying blog that we will do with this podcast will have a map showing uh, the Sangha River and, and Republic of Congo and these buys and things. I mean, this is the hotbed for much of a, of these outbreaks of Ebola. I think there's been three or four in Gabon. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's uh, what's well, going through your head at this point? Well, it's a little spooky. To be in the forest and know that Ebola is somewhere in the forest with you. Um, we were very careful. Mike Fay was always very careful on the megatransect to make sure that his uh, his crew, uh, these first they were Congolese fellows and then they were Gabonese fellows. Um, some of them were from the ethnic groups that um, used to be called by the inappropriate, politically incorrect term pygmy. Aka people, Babangeli people, Bangombe people, people of slightly smaller size uh, who had long histories of living in the deep forest. And Mike Fay made sure when we were walking through known Ebola territories, as particularly such as Minkebi, he made sure that the crew abided by his rules, which is that we will not live off the land. We will live off the rice, the dried meat, the sardines, the the fufu manioc paste um, starch that we are carrying, no killing of dikers, no killing of monkeys, no killing of bats, no killing of birds, no killing of anything to put in the stew pot that we all ate from at the end of the day. But that was particularly important when you were walking through Ebola territory. <laughs> you did not want the cook to scavenge a dead monkey or a dead chimp and feed it to you that night. I could understand why. <laughs> um, when in this process did you go, there's something bigger here that we're not, there's all these scientists out there doing this work like a, a Billy Carish, but the words aren't getting out to the public. And I know that's your job. And that's, and that's part of the reason we wanted you on Talking Apes. Where in that that arc, the alarm bells go off in your head that... There, there's so much more going on here. And you come back to um, a, a couple of terms. One is disturbed forest on, a, on several occasions. That's my fascination with the ecology of disease is we're doing all these things to the planet. And we, we, we just, it seems like we're blind to what's happening. When did that strike you? I think it was the 13 dead gorillas. I think it was the moment when, um, when this fellow... Tony Mbut was his name, um, told that story of the 13 dead gorillas outside of the village of Mayabutu. Uh, and that alerted me to the, the bell rang and the, and the meaning of the ringing of the bell was several things. It was me realizing that this subject of zoonotic diseases is all about ecology and evolutionary biology. It is it falls within those disciplines of the ecology of scary viruses, the evolutionary um, processes that allow a virus to adapt to new hosts. And so that a bat virus can become a chimp virus, can become a human virus. It was those things that told me, look, you can write about this. This is in your wheelhouse because your wheelhouse is ecology, evolutionary biology and conservation. And the conservation part uh, resided in the fact that um, these dead gorillas emblematized the fact that um, dead of Ebola, near where humans were dying of Ebola, that uh, connectedness that's so important, that connectedness between us humans and the other apes and other mammals on earth and all other life on earth. It was a reminder, what I've called elsewhere, um, a reminder of Darwin's, one of Darwin's great truths. And I think it's the, the darkest of Darwin's truths. And that is that we humans are animals. 
We're, we're just animals. We're mammals. We're not angels sent to earth from another part of the universe. We have nipples, even males. We have nipples. Why do we have nipples? One of the questions that Darwin addresses in his early notebooks. Why do male humans have nipples? Well, because evolution found it economical not to bother getting rid of them. Um, but it's, it's a reminder that we are connected to all other, all other mammals that also have nipples um, that give birth uh, and suckle their young, um, that we're part of this, this story. We're one of the characters in the story of the evolution of life on Earth. And um, how do we get exposed to these viruses that animals have? We get exposed to them in the main by disruptive interactions with them by killing them and butchering them for food, disturbing their habitat, capturing them to ship them away to other places, live in, in some cases for, for food or for traditional medical uses, uh, like the scales of a pangolin, um, or by cutting down forests and building um, logging camps and uh, mining camps in diverse tropical forests where the workers have to eat wildlife to have any protein available to them. Um, all of these things we do bring us in contact with the viruses that all other animals carry. And all other animals do carry viruses in great, great diversity, some of which are viruses that have the capacity to evolve quickly, adapt quickly to new kinds of hosts and seize opportunities for broader evolutionary success, not by intentionality, but by simply following what I call the Darwinian imperatives, the, the three Darwinian imperatives on any creature that replicates by way of a genome. And those, um, those three Darwinian imperatives are make a lot of copies of yourself, have a lot of babies, have a lot of offspring first. Secondly, extend yourself in geographical space, colonize new habitat wherever you can. And the third is extend yourself in time, avoid extinction, persist on earth. Those are the three Darwinian imperatives and viruses just obey those Darwinian imperatives. And so when they have the opportunity to spill from one kind of host into another kind of host and to latch on and replicate themselves and infect and then transmit from one individual of the new host to another individual, to another, to another. Some viruses are able to seize that opportunity and they become human viruses and they spread around the world and they vastly increase their evolutionary success if they go from some poor endangered species such as a chimpanzee or or Hill's horseshoe bat in Rwanda, and they get into humans, of which there are 8 billion closely interconnected around the planet, that's a great career move for a virus. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that's what's the interesting thing is to think about it like that as a career move if you're a virus. That, that leads almost perfectly into Chimp in the River, um, talking about a career move. And because that focuses, that's again, another part of the book Spillover, but also you excerpted it into a, a standalone um, small book, which I, I've heard, which is, a, is an incredible read. And I think it should be mandatory reading for every, you know, junior high, high schooler. Uh, it's it's a, such a beautiful piece of science, but I've also heard you say that it's, one of your, maybe your, your best 110 pages of writing. I, I think it's, I think it's the most important 110 pages I've ever written. And um, I hope it's among the best. Uh, and it was my publisher. I think it was my British publisher who said, why don't we pull that out and um, publish it separately again as a freestanding book? You could write, you could, you could write a new introduction. You could make sure that it, the, the chimp in the river story is self-contained. And, and, and we should tell your listeners what this is about is the ecological origins of the AIDS pandemic. Before we jump there, there are two things that connect it. One is in, 
in the 13 gorillas section of spillover there's a woman named Tr- trish reed and she says uh, you quote her uh, one is she's very emphatic we need to know where it is and we're talking about ebola at this point we need to know where it is and and then at a, another point um it says, remember, the human body isn't the primary habitat for Ebola virus. The reservoir ho- host is. I, those are two really, really interesting quotes. Be, and they connect to Chimp in the River because we need to know where it is. And that, that, is, that was like the battle cry of HIV. We need to know where this thing started and we need, so, so we know where it is. Maybe we could go down that path. Yes. Well, and, I, and I've said elsewhere, um, one of the things that makes it um, easier to write about zoonotic diseases, and I hope more, more engaging for readers, is that every new zoonotic disease begins as a mystery story. You know, suddenly, suddenly there's a novel virus in humans and it's killing people and it's spreading. Where the hell did it come from? What is it, this new thing, and where did it come from? And so scientists like Billy Karish, like Trish Reed, um, like a number of others that I profile in Spillover, they go out into the forest, um, put themselves at some risk, and try and solve the mystery of where this new virus came from and how it got into humans to begin with. Why? Because that may help us deal with that particular virus, but um, equally it may help us, uh, that particular outbreak, but it may help us avoid future outbreaks. Um, And future recurrent outbreaks are of huge importance in some of these cases, particularly when you have a really lethal virus such as Ebola that doesn't fortunately, doesn't transmit so well among humans as to be able to maintain a continuous infective presence in humans, um, but spills over in recurrent episodes and kills 20 people here, 30 people there, or in the case of the 2014 Ebola outbreak, 11,000 people. You need to know where the virus is so you can prevent that, prevent more outbreaks from happening. And that's why we're still trying to figure out what is the reservoir host of Ebola. Uh, and we're still having outbreaks. There was one in uh, eastern Uganda, I think, that has just just recently been declared over. Um, but there have been dozens and dozens of independent Ebola outbreaks, each caused by a spillover, an independent spillover. So knowing the reservoir host helps you prevent additional spillovers. But in the case of, of the AIDS, the HIV, the pandemic strain of HIV, there was, we now know, one, just one fateful spillover that occurred in the southeastern corner of Cameroon, near the headwaters of the Sangha River and a smaller tributary called the Ngoko River. And it occurred back around 1908, give or take a margin of error. And so in The Chimp in the River, I tell the story of those discoveries, how those facts about the beginning of the AIDS pandemic are known, how particular scientists solved those particular mysteries and the implications and how the pandemic AIDS virus spread around the world from that first person who was infected, probably from a chimpanzee that was carrying a precursor virus um, known as SIV subscript chimp, which became HIV-1, the pandemic strain, that one person got infected from a chimpanzee, probably by blood-to-blood contact in, a, in an act of uh, hunting, hunting and butchering of a chimpanzee. And the details of that event are unknowable. So I do something that was a little bit risky in the chimp and the river, I tell the reader very clearly, okay, now there's a space between what is known by science, um, how the, vi- the origin of the virus and how it ended up spreading among humans. But in between, there's a, a story that I will tell speculatively. I will essentially um, tell a fictionalized story of how that might 
have happened. And this is important to me because I hate nonfiction that is fictionalized without confession to the reader. So I tell the reader very clearly, okay, let's imagine, let's imagine a guy in the southeastern corner of Cameroon. I'm going to call him the Voyager, and he gets infected in the following way. And then let's say that he has some elephant tusks that he wants to sell, these treasures that he has acquired. And so he gets in a boat, and he canoes down the Ngoko River. And then let's say he goes to the um, to this particular market town and has this experience. And let's say eventually he gets down to the capital of the Republic of the Congo down at Brazzaville on the main stem Congo River. And and so I tell it as a uh, as a what if <clears throat> story to fill to fill the gap um, between what's known near the beginning and what's known later on. What's amazing about that story and why it's so powerful in that book is because prior to that story, you give us all the backstory as the the search for um, HIV. And so so we have that to go on. And I think that the story that you tell is, yes, while it's it's fictionalized, it's based on all this evidence that you have just presented to us. Well, and again, also, I went there Um I went to the Ngoko River. I went to southeastern Cameroon. I went to the Ngoko River. I chartered a canoe. I went downriver on the canoe to the market town. Um, and I, so I, I based this storytelling on um, actual observations uh, and, um, you know, the, the lay of the land and, and how life functions in those places. That that's exactly where I was going with it because I've been there. We've had uh, guests on on here uh, talking about areas like the Jaw, which is just to the west of that that region. Um, and I've been in that area, and the story that you write is so vivid to me, and because I've seen those villages, I've seen those logging camps. Um, you can I can visualize every single passageway of this virus as it moves down that river to a bigger river and then spreads out into um, what would become, you know, Brazzaville and, and the capital um, in the area now, Kinshasa, the capital. But go, go ahead. You're you're about to say. Oh, I was going to say, well, Jerry, you're my ideal audience, my ideal reader for that book then. But I hope it works well for other people, too. But but yes, the 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 the, the fictionalized part of it is very, very, very much informed by reporting. That's the key. And and, and that's where I, I think this should be mandatory reading in every high school across this country, because it's not only great science, uh, it, it's great writing. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and the scientists that I was talking with, the, the scientists who did this work, I mean, Beatrice Hahn, then of the University of Birmingham, who was the scientist who led the team that figured out uh, that, 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 collected um, chimpanzee poop from all over Africa and sampled it for viruses, looking for the SIV chimp that most closely matched HIV-1 um, in order to, to place the spillover in geographical space. And then Michael Warby of the University of Arizona, who worked with the team that um, had different samples of um, of HIV, early samples of HIV, and they figured out at what point it must have um, spilled into humans originally and started evolving to adapt to humans in particular and differentiating from the chimpanzee virus. And he's the one who placed it at 1908, give or take a margin of error. So they're publishing these articles in in the journal Science and Nature. Um, and... Um, Beatrice Hahn used the phrase, the cut hunter hypothesis, to explain how this probably began. The cut hunter hypothesis, all right? And I realized that Beatrice Hahn, that's as far as she could go in terms of really um, the demands of science based on evidence and the dry writing that you find in scientific journals. But that I had the opportunity and maybe the responsibility to take the phrase, the cut hunter hypothesis, and turn that into a speculative narrative and, and make people see it and, and feel it in their gut. 
I think, why The Hot Zone was so popular. The Hot Zone originally was a two-part magazine article in The New Yorker. And I, I read that when it ran in The New Yorker, and it was just riveting to me. It was, it was one of the first things I read about Ebola, and it galvanized my interest in this charismatically horrific virus. Um, later, I talked to a lot of the experts, and, and they had some, some bones to pick with the hot zone and with Richard Preston about accuracy. Um, but it, it, it's, it certainly, um, it, was, it was riveting in its early two-part magazine form. Um, and, and that's what I think is so interesting about uh, Chimp in the River. We go from this Ebola idea, if we, if we think of, of your work in Breathless, which you know, we'll talk about in part two of this, this podcast, as sort of this culmination for the moment of this, this arc, Chimp in the River sits in the middle because it, unlike Ebola, HIV seems to combine ego and arrogance and politics into this process, which we've, we saw explode with COVID. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that, um, the fact that this virus, HIV, HIV one group M to be very technical about it, the, um, the pandemic strain and substrain HIV one group M, it got to those cities in the central Congo, Brazzaville, and what then was Leopoldville, now is Kinshasa of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. These two, these two big cities that sit across the Great Congo River from each other. The virus got there, and then through a series of fateful circumstances, it spread from there to the world. And those circumstances, again, I described them in the Chimp in the River. The fact that. Um, uh, Hypodermic needles back in the 1920s were precision medical instruments that were constantly reused, hypodermic syringes and needles on them, and sometimes reused with barely a, a, a swishing in a, in a pan of distilled water to, to supposedly um, clean them, sterilize them between going into the arms or the butts of different humans, uh, and that... Um, medicine against malaria and uh, I can't remember the other disease was being administered. Um, there was one fellow who who administered medicine um, to thousands of people using five or six reusable syringes at this time uh, and therefore may have helped to jumpstart the AIDS pandemic. Um, there were... Uh, Venereal disease clinics in uh, the cities, particularly in Leopoldville, there was one um, where um, sex workers, women, were going in to have their venereal disease treated, and um, they were being treated with these reusable um, uh, syringes also, and that may have caused a spread, and they were, uh, some of them had um, men clients, boyfriends, uh, or just casual clients who were Haitian, who had come over, uh, Haitian professionals who had come over to the Congo at the request of the president of the Congo, um, Mobutu, at that point, because he had thrown all the Belgians out and the Belgian professionals had gone back to Belgium. This had been the Belgian Congo. And then in 1960, it became, it became, uh, independent and the Belgians left and he needed teachers and lawyers and surveyors uh, and clerks. And there was a request that went out and uh, French speaking Africans in Haiti professionals came over and lent their skills to the newly independent Congo. And then um, and then they were thrown out in about 1965 and they went back to Haiti and they took the virus with them to Haiti. And then from Haiti, it got to the U.S. and eventually, along other routes, it got to the world. That's the fateful story that I tell in The Chimp in the River. Which is extraordinary because we, we talk about – we're all very aware of the word pandemic because of SARS-CoV-2, COVID. But yet, HIV is still with us. It is 
in the last, I believe in the last century, it's the most deadly pandemic to break out. It's killed, what, 36 to 40 million people now. And yet that's, you know, why I go back to ego, arrogance and politics because of the way it started and especially how it was stigmatized as being a gay disease that we, it somehow has eluded that term pandemic. We haven't treated it with the urgency um, that, you know, we've treated, for example, COVID. I, I just, that's why I think it's a fascinating yeah. intermediary to yeah. this story of disease and disease spread. Neither HIV nor Ebola is casually transmissible on a cough on a breath, on a, on a shout, on a song. And SARS-CoV-2, our COVID virus, is. Um, so it's, um, it's more dangerous to everyone, more terrifying to everyone. Um, and therefore, it is unfairly... Um, taken more seriously perhaps than, than the AIDS pandemic has been by people who don't feel themselves jeopardized by AIDS. You know, in the beginning, as you said, you know, AIDS was stigmatized as this, this gay disease, the disease of men who have sex with, with men. Um, and some people wanted to believe that there was something special about that, that, and that heterosexual people weren't in danger of it. But in Africa, AIDS is primarily a heterosexual disease. Um, it's a virus that is caused that is carried in, you know, bodily fluids, particularly um, during sexual contact, um, and it potentially can infect anybody, just as COVID can, but not as easily, not through casual contact, not by, not by, sitting next to somebody on an airplane who happens to be coughing, and. And that's a that's a fateful difference. Um, I remember around 2014, I um, I was up in Alaska filming, and uh, an ER doc friend who's a a bush plane pilot as well, float plane pilot. He was flying me out. We were talking about Ebola, and he said, "Now take Ebola and imagine it being an aerosol. Then we really have an issue." And and that's uh, you know that's what we began to to face with with COVID. We had this you know deadly disease that was as you said a cough or a shout or a song. Um, right, right. And and the original SARS virus in two thousand and three was also a respiratory transmitted virus, an aerosol transmitted virus, um, and it was ten times more lethal than than this virus and the COVID virus. Uh, it infected, there were, there were 8,000 known cases and 800 deaths. So one in 10, um, and that was respiratory, but it had one crucial difference from this virus. It was, as far as we know, not transmissible by people who were asymptomatic. You got, you got really noticeably sick and then you started to transmit the original SARS virus rather than transmitting the virus for a few days, walking around, riding the subway, feeling fine, going to work, transmitting the virus, and then getting sick, which is what has made this virus so dangerous. And and indeed, back in 2003 and, and afterwards, um, if you talk to the disease scientists who were closely involved with SARS-CoV-2, like a, a fellow named Ali Khan, then at the CDC, who, who I quote in um, both Spillover and in breathless. I went back to him for breathless. Uh, he told me that uh, SARS-1 in 2003 was the most dangerous um, outbreak virus that he had ever worked on uh, because it was respiratory and it killed one in 10. And, and he said, but boy, if you wanted to make it worse, uh, if you wanted the nightmare scenario, just take that SARS virus and make it transmissible from asymptomatic cases. Let's take a break here and then let's come back and let's talk about breathless. Let's talk about SARS. And I want to talk about um, the words that you use to start section three and spill over. It's everything comes from somewhere. And I think that one sort of, sort of overarches our, our search for where uh, COVID-19 is and started and began. So let's talk about that in part two. That's an interesting question. Let's do 
I want to thank David for this journey into the wilds of disease ecology, spillover, and the danger to apes like us. David has graciously agreed to spend another hour with me to take a deep dive into his new book, Breathless, and the world of viruses, specifically coronavirus and the COVID pandemic that we've all been living through. And even more importantly, what such outbreaks mean for us and apes like us going forward. You'll find part two, as well as additional information and links to everything David and I were discussing on our website at TalkingApes.org. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Our conversations are with folks from across this planet of apes, writers, researchers, conservationists, and scientists, all getting us closer to understanding who we are and why. Because ensuring the survival of the other four great apes is the only way to ensure our own survival. I would like to thank our Talking Apes team, assistant producer Demel Zaban, and lead researcher Megan Lewandowski for all of the behind-the-scenes work they do in making this podcast possible. And I would like to thank you, the donors and Patreon members who make Talking Apes successful through your generous support and the sharing of this podcast. If you appreciate what you hear on Talking Apes, consider supporting us by logging onto our website at talkingapes.org. And finally, I would like to thank all of those on the front line of Great Ape Survival. We hope through Talking Apes, we are shining a light on the incredible selfless work you do every day to ensure great apes, primates, and their forest homes survive and thrive deep into the future. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening and for sharing Talking Apes.